picking up in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 21 this morning. So a little bit smaller section, but this will set the stage well for what we're going to talk about in some of the coming weeks. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. I'm going to read for us... uh, this section, so if you would, go ahead and stand if you're able to, and we'll read it together. I'm going to, just for context, just a reminder, Jesus in the previous uh, passage in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, he fed the 4,000. Uh, he Then in verse 10, it says, immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. Then verse 11 picks up where we're starting here today. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he, Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Go ahead and have a seat. I'm going to pray and jump into our study for this morning. So, Father, we do come to you now with just a desire for open hearts and opened eyes. Um, As we look through this passage this morning, we recognize that so often uh, the greatest barrier to um, understanding you is ourselves and our own preparation to see and understand and hear and to behold you. And so pray that this morning, even right now, you would um, free up distracted minds that are here this morning, uh, that eyes that are heavy and minds that are wandering, I pray that you would clear them so that they are able to behold the beauty of Christ, but also to heed some of the warnings that he puts before them of what it looks like to live in this world with blind eyes. So please uh, give us the grace that we desperately need. Uh, we, we so desire to, to know you and to see you in all of your splendor. But we cannot do that on our own. We need your help. So please help us to do that this morning as we come to your word together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of us have experienced the, uh, the joys of a good night's rest after a long night. Um, I know last couple nights have been extremely late nights for myself and for for Holly lots of traveling and uh, even on Friday night a late late night movie things that come on the heels of a trip in San Francisco where we were up a lot of nights as well (laughs) 
and you just long for good night's rest, one where you just are uh, just loving the darkness of the warm bed that you sleep in. And many of you can probably relate to that. You experience that a lot, probably gonna experience that a lot more as we get into the school year here soon. And there's nothing uh, worse than that feeling of when someone comes in and flips on the light switch, right? Uh, sometimes uh, our girls have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom, and rather than going all the way down the hall to their bathroom, they like to cut in through our room to use our bathroom. And so often it's like they flip on the light to the bathroom, and the light comes in, you're just, you're blinded by it, right? Uh, Many of you have experienced that maybe with parents. I remember when I was a kid, and that was the way that my parents would wake me up in the morning. You know, we're, we're usually trying to be gentle with our girls sometimes, kind of just like slowly pat them back to let them slowly wake up. Now, my dad was that person who just come in, like throw on the switch and be like, time to get up. Anybody else got that parent? Yeah, yeah, you know what that's like. And what's the natural instinct in that moment? It's to want to like throw the covers back over your head, right? Because the darkness feels so much better than the light in that moment. And not to mention, it's hard to see, right? When that light comes on, it's actually quite blinding, even though we naturally do see in the light, that initial exposure to the light actually is more challenging to see than often even the darkness was before. You know, as we think about seeing in the light and darkness, think about so often, even when we are put, when Jesus is set before us, sometimes it's hard to actually see him the way that he desires to be seen or to hear him the way he desires to be heard. Sometimes our own darkness and our own, uh, own lives and our lifestyles blind the way that we are expected to truly see Jesus even when he is set clearly before us. So that's why this morning, as we look at Mark uh, chapter 8, and you know, we see this section, I want you to be able to see, ironically, right? I want you to be able to see from this passage how spiritual blindness threatens your ability to follow Jesus. And I think there's kind of a twofold way that you can look at that. Number one, if you are already a Christian, if you're already someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, there are ways that you can live in spiritual blindness. You have ways that you can be distracted by the things of this world. We're going to see that in the disciples this morning. And when you do that, when you start to get your eyes set off of Jesus and more on the things of this world, it hinders your ability to walk faithfully with Christ. It, it hinders your ability to see Jesus as he desires for you to see him. Uh, so it's a threat to you being able to grow and to develop and to be built up in your faith. But at the same time, spiritual blindness threatens your ability to follow Jesus permanently as well. And we're going to see that in this story, especially from the perspective of the disciples who are the, from the Pharisees who hardened their hearts so much that they were unwilling and unable to truly see Jesus and truly submit to him. So just a reminder of the, the background of where we've been here in Mark's gospel. In uh, recent weeks here, Jesus has been fairly well received in kind of the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8 here. He's been ministering in what we call Gentile regions. And Gentile regions just mean uh, non-Jewish regions. So if you remember, Jesus is Jewish by nature. Uh, people think as the Jewish Messiah is going to just be ministering to the people of the nation of Israel. But he's even... Uh, 
uh, doing ministry to foreigners, people outside the nation of Israel, and showing immense grace and compassion to them, and it's being received uh, by them. He's being welcomed by them, but ironically enough, the people to whom he came, the Jews, uh, do not always receive him the way that you would expect. He is beginning here now in chapter 8 to make his way back to more Jewish regions uh, where his own both have a much harder time seeing and understanding him for who he really is. That's the nature of spiritual blindness as it keeps us from truly accepting and receiving and following Jesus the way he deserves. And so we see that demonstrated by two groups as we've kind of already highlighted this morning in this passage. So we're going to look at them each individually and look at the nature of their spiritual blindness that's expressed in these two movements of this story. And the first is with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, I think we see people who are seeking what cannot be given in verses 11 to 13. Seeking what cannot be given, what can't be provided to them. Uh, so here we have this encounter uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees. And if, again, you're new or you're still trying to remember what in the world are Pharisees, it's a really weird name. Pharisees is just kind of a fancy term to uh, describe uh, kind of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. These were the people who were the teachers, they were the scholars, they were the ones who uh, would help you know what it is to know God and follow God, except uh, so often in this culture, the Pharisees were uh, adding rules and they were making it harder to follow God. And in so doing, they were kind of uh, making themselves more high and mighty and macho and drawing more attention to themselves for their own personal gain than they were truly seeking to serve the people and to love them and help them follow God better. Instead, they were kind of placing burdens on people that they themselves were unwilling to carry. So Jesus has crossed back over the Sea of Galilee into this Jewish territory here, and he has these visitors here ready to greet him, but uh, it's far from what we would consider to be a warm welcome reception for Jesus. In fact, notice in verse 11, here, it says here that the Pharisees came, so it's just like, it sounds like they came to him right when he like got off the boat, because it says here immediately at the end of this account, he gets back into the boat and he leaves. So it's like almost maybe this encounter at the shoreline where the Pharisees are there to greet Jesus. But again, it's not this like, oh, Jesus, we missed you. Welcome back. We're so glad that you're here. Instead, notice it says they came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Notice it says to test him. This encounter is not a scholarly debate. This is not some discussion of differing viewpoints. No, this encounter is hostile. They're harassing Jesus to give them what they not just ask, but really what they demand. They are demanding from him to see a sign from heaven to test him. And that idea that uh, a sign from heaven, in other words, they're seeking from Jesus verification directly that he is a messenger from God. That's what that kind of testing idea uh, means there, to test him. That truly is that he has authority to speak these things. Um, they didn't just want him to perform some type of miracle. No, they wanted some type of proof that he operates off of God's authority. 
Now, this is interesting because if you think about this, how many times has Jesus actually done these types of things in the presence of the Pharisees before? Now, there's not like a number I'm looking for, but it's that he's done it numerous times before. They have seen this. It's not like they haven't ever witnessed Jesus doing these types of things, that he has done this for them. And so the fact that they're asking for more proof, more evidence, more reason to believe is just foolish. As if to say, well, just do it one more time and, and then we'll believe you. No, they had been given countless opportunities. But see, when you are spiritually blind because of your sin, you only choose to see what you want to see in Jesus. They already had their minds made up about who Jesus was. They had no desire, no actual ambition to want to follow him. In fact, they were probably looking for more reasons to not believe him. Because every time he had done this, they had tried to figure out a reason or a loophole not to believe him. In fact, do you remember earlier in the Gospels when Jesus performed a miracle? How did they say that he did it? They were trying to reason with themselves. How in the world did Jesus have the power to do this? What, what was their excuse or what was their suggested reasoning for it. Do you remember? How did Jesus have that power? Earlier on in Mark's Gospel, they said, no, he does this by uh, the power of Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons. Basically, in other words, he, he can only do these things because there's some type of satanic power at work in him. That's pretty, that's pretty bold. Right? It's no wonder Jesus is, he's just flat out annoyed by them. And that's kind of demonstrated in his response. It says in verse 12, he, Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, this is fascinating because our English translations of the Bible, uh, to help us understand kind of what it's saying, it kind of does something here where it makes it a little bit clearer in how it translates it. But if you were to, to, to do like a literal translation of what Jesus says here, it's something more along the lines of Jesus saying, if a sign be given to this generation... And you're like, well, if, that, that sounds like conditional, like... If a sign be given, well, maybe this, maybe that. So it sounds very open-ended. But let me ask you this. Um, many of you have siblings in this room here. So let me ask you this. Does this sound very open-ended? Or maybe you've said this line or you've heard this line from your siblings before. If you touch me again. Now, do you need me to complete what that actually means? Right? Or if mom and dad say, if you give me lip one more time, again, do you, do you think you need to complete the rest of that? No, because you in your mind know what the, the, the response is to that. Some of you have probably uh, experienced maybe the second part of that without it being verbally expressed to you before, right? If you go in my room one more time. Yeah, you know. In other words, you know there's consequences on the other side of it. So when Jesus is saying, if, if, if there be a sign given to this generation, 
God help me, right? It, it, will, it will truly, it will not happen. I will absolutely forbid it. It cannot. It will not happen. And so notice Jesus' response is very bold in response to them, but he's just, he's fed up with the hardness of their hearts because they refuse to believe. In verse 13, it says, He left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. I mean, that right there is an expression and a sign of judgment. The fact that Jesus gets into a boat and he leaves them. He deserts them. He says, I'm not doing this anymore. So you see here, just with the Pharisees, their big problem was that they wanted proof without faith. They wanted proof without faith. I like the way that James Edwards, uh, one of the commentators, uh, says this. He says it this way. I'll repeat it a few times because I think it's so good. He says, faith that depends on proof is not faith. Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled doubt. Say that again one more time just because I think it's so good. Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but rather it's veiled doubt. It's to put a cover over the fact that you truly don't believe. You want all these evidences. You want one more thing to try to prove Jesus. Jesus knew that they had no true intention of submitting to him. That's why he is so exasperated by their demand says that he, the fact that he sighed in his spirit here, I mean, humanly speaking, he was sick and tired of this kind of response from people who had been given so much revelation. He had demonstrated his power and authority several times, and now they were acting as if one more sign would do it for them. And, and you know, we see this in our culture today, too. People who, who demand, they, need, they have to have every answer they have to have every proof before they can even claim that they will believe in Jesus. Or you have other people who just want to seek for extra revelation or want some type of special encounter with God. Maybe if that happens first, then I will believe. And you know what? That's just pride. It's pride in the ugliest form. And so when we ask ourselves, why were the Pharisees doing this and why was Jesus so annoyed with them? Well, because their focus was on protecting their pride. They had no intention on submitting to a different authority, which is exactly what pride does. Pride finds all the excuses for why you should not follow Jesus. That's why we say spiritual blindness threatens your ability to follow Jesus. The Pharisees loved their place of honor. They loved the privileges that came from being in charge. They loved the opportunity to tell other people what to do while they themselves cared less about what they did themselves. And they recognized, rightly, we might add, that Jesus was a threat to the kingdom that they had established in their own hearts. In that sense, we could say that they did indeed see. They could see. But they saw incorrectly. They saw a wrong picture of Jesus. Because they saw that Jesus had authority, but they saw it as a threat rather than being good for them. 
They saw it as a threat to their own kingdom and their own hearts and their own way that they could live their lives. And so rather than submit and bow the knee to that, they resisted. In fact, they hardened their hearts. Student, Jesus is immensely patient. He's immensely patient towards sinners who are resisting him. But that does not mean that his patience is unlimited. A time is coming when he will get in the boat and he will sail away. In other words, you can only resist his authority for so long in your life. Do not let your own pride be the reason that you miss out on this opportunity truly to see Jesus and behold and to follow him. Understand that his authority is good. If there's anything that I've been meditating on a lot this past year, it's on that, it's on that very truth. I feel like that is so often the reasons that people don't follow God or they have trouble obeying him is because we don't truly see his authority as good. We hear the messages of the world. We hear the messages of our own heart and we think to ourselves, that must be good. That is what I want to pursue. And we see what God says and we think, you know what? God doesn't actually have my best interests in mind. I truly believe that that's so often why we don't truly follow God the way that we should. Or submit to him as he calls us to. You have to believe that. You have to. And so the Pharisees were seeking something that could not be given. But when we look at the back half of this section here, when we look at the disciples, we see with the disciples that they are missing what is right before them. <laughs> They're missing what is, we could say, right under their nose. Notice here in verse 14 it says, uh, Now they, that is the disciples, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Uh, for all we know, they are... <laughs> they probably intended when they stopped at, on the shoreline, they probably thought, you know what, we're going to be here for a while. We'll go into the villages. We'll get our supplies, the things that we need. Obviously, this encounter with the Pharisees happens. Things change. They get back into the boat and they leave. And all of a sudden, they realize to themselves, uh-oh, we only have one loaf of bread here. When we talk about like a loaf of bread, this isn't like your, uh, you know, giant loaf that you get from the store, right? It's got 16 slices in it, whatever. You know, you got 12 disciples plus Jesus. Everybody gets a slice of bread. We're all good. No. This is like a loaf is like, you know, maybe like a pita bread type size thing. All right. This is not like a loaf. It's like everybody maybe pulls off a piece and gets like, you know, a little like handful that, that's that big or so. It's not really sustainable. It's they're hungry and they're like annoyed at the fact that now we don't really have any bread to to eat. And I think Jesus somehow knows that this is going on. And so he in verse 15, he wants to kind of poke and prod at their heart a little bit here. So notice that he doesn't go directly to the issue of bread. He will get there eventually, but instead he approaches it from a different angle. Look at what he does in verse 15. He says, "He cautioned them, saying, "Watch out." Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's kind of a, a weird thing. And in their minds, they're not fully sure what that means. Even for ourselves, they're like, this is kind of an odd statement to make. Uh, leaven, we hear about leaven a lot in the New Testament. Leaven is, uh, you know, that element that which helps make bread rise. Um, 
it's not just, you know, sometimes we think, well, oh, it's like yeast. You know, you put yeast into bread and it, it rises. And, uh, but this is not necessarily that specific type of ingredient, but there is stuff that went into making bread that would help it rise. But what the leaven was, when you made a, uh, a dough, or a, yeah, a batch of dough to make bread, you would actually keep some of it to the side and you would use that when you were making your next batch of bread. It would help the next one rise. Have you guys ever had like, uh, I think it's called friendship bread. Is that what it's called? Friendship bread? Is that where you like save some of the dough stuff too? Yeah. So it's kind of that idea. It's like that is used then for the next batch. And that's what helps the next batch get going and helps permeate it and cause it to rise. Now, if that batch is not good, you can imagine that that would impact then the rest of the loaf of bread, wouldn't it? Because whenever that stuff gets worked in, it spreads out and the whole bread, the whole loaf then is either benefited or contaminated by it. And so here Jesus is warning them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. So he's not actually talking about literal leaven here. This is meta a metaphor for something. And in their minds, they're like, uh, we don't really know what that means. Uh, but they think to themselves, well, verse 16, they began discussing with one, uh, one another the fact that they had no bread. Uh, they may even think to themselves, oh, Jesus is kind of ticked at us that we didn't get bread. And now they're worried about it. They're probably doing what the disciples do. They're arguing with each other about whose fault it is and who is the most responsible among them. And it's just this ugly picture of lack of faith. And Jesus, verse 17, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? What are you doing? Why are you so fixated on this issue of bread? I mean, it's amazing. They... We could say here that they want food, but they lack, they lack faith. And Jesus asks them several questions to kind of just prod at this a little bit further. There's nothing like a good question to kind of poke at your heart, right? It says in verse 17, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see and having ears, do you not hear? And then notice this. I love how he does this here. In verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And he responds to that. And the seven for the 4,000, the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you take up? And they said to him, seven. This, this just happened. They had watched Jesus provide bread out of almost nothing. They are so fixated on their circumstances that they forget who is in the boat with them. The one who can multiply anything. The one who him very, his very self is the bread of life. And they are so distracted by what's before them. We do this. See this with little kids, right? We have 
girls in our house that are really good at seeing the things that they have no business seeing, but then when you need them to see something that's right before them, like, hey, can you pick up your shoes? No, right there, right, right there, right there, right there. And we laugh at that, but we do the same. We do that in our daily lives, but we do that with Jesus as well, where we get so fixated on the things of this world that we miss the one who's right there with us. The disciples here, they lacked faith because their focus was on the mundane things of this world. They were so distracted by silly things. We, now we get it. Bread is essential. It's not like that was unimportant, but notice how their lack of faith distracted them from the one who was able to supply. <laughs> Jesus is like, do you guys forget who you're following here? Do you forget what I'm able to supply to you? And so Jesus here, just by asking these questions, is just poking and prodding at their heart to just challenge them and maybe the ways that they're not seeing the world clearly. And when he's warning them here of this, this leaven, we ask ourselves, well, what is the leaven? If this is kind of a metaphor for something, what is it? And we can't know for sure because it's not specifically stated here. But I, I wonder if the, the leaven that he's warning them about here is spiritual blindness. Is spiritual blindness. Because we think to ourselves of what he just supplied in the opening 10 verses when he provided all this bread for this crowd of 4,000 people, probably more than 4,000 people. And then in the next verses, you have the Pharisees who are refusing to see what Jesus is able to do and what Jesus is able to supply. And then you have the disciples now oblivious to the fact of who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing. And Jesus is warning them, saying, like, listen, even though you're in the boat with me, even though you're following me, you're not that far away from the deadly influence of these people who do not see me at all. You need to be on guard. You need to watch yourself and make sure that the things of this world are not going to pull you away from me. And so as we think about this, think about what Jesus is warning and what he's setting before us, what Mark's setting before us here this morning in this passage, a couple of really important things that we need to keep in mind. The first one is this. We need to stop asking Jesus to prove himself. You need to stop asking Jesus to prove himself. You know, when Jesus or when God is asked to prove himself or for uh, God to be put to the test in Scripture, it's most often in the Bible seen as a negative. It's not something that's viewed in the positive. Now, there are times where God does this to strengthen the faith of some people, but for others, this is just an expression of their hardness of heart looking for the evidential proofs that God is real or that Jesus existed, often giving all the excuses for why they cannot believe in Jesus. And there's a word that the Bible uses for this in Romans 1.18. It's the word suppress. I don't think there's a stronger word in the Bible to describe the hardness of heart of people when they continue to see Jesus put before them, when the scriptures are revealed, and when God shows himself clearly, and yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And when that word suppress means 
deep down they know that that is real right we describe it that word is that illustration of the the beach ball that you try to push below the surface of the water if you've ever played that game in the pool where you try to hold the beach ball under right the reality is that beach ball is going to resurface it desires to pop up because it is meant to float it is true and so yet in your sin you were suppressing it pushing it down all the while it is trying to rise to the surface because it is true it's not as if you can hold it down and it's just going to stay there. All the evidence, student, that you need has been given through God's special revelation in the Bible. Remember, faith that depends on proof is not faith. It's not faith. Faith requires an element of trust when all the answers cannot be given. You have every reason to be able to trust God and trust what he says in his word. And we have every reason to trust Jesus. He has nothing left to prove to you, especially of his love for you. He has given the greatest price. He has done everything to demonstrate and prove to you already how much he is worthy to be followed. He has nothing left to prove to you. And so often the reason you suppress this truth is due to your own sin, which we could say is pride or worldliness, which is why we need to be reminded as well to beware that sin has a permeating effect. Right? This was illustrated by the, the idea of leaven, right? Leaven is not something that, uh, it's not like Play-Doh, where if you try to mix Play-Doh together, it's not like you get a brand new color. It's just you get this really weird conglomerate of different colors together, right? It's, it's not like that. No, it mixes together and everything then is affected by it. Jesus is teaching his disciples just how easy it is for the sin of others to influence even his closest followers. It's a warning for them. The warning for them is the same as it is for you. Watch out for sin's influence. Beware. Be on guard. Do not tolerate it. Do not entertain it. So many of us are quick. We live in the world. We go to schools where we play on public rec teams. We have interactions with people in our jobs and we forget to ourselves to not entertain or guard against the sinful influences around us. It doesn't mean you isolate yourself. It doesn't mean that you go and you live in a cave and you just cut yourself off completely from everything. No, it means that you need to be proactive. You need to have an appropriate mindset going into those things. I appreciate the way that John Owen says this in one of his earliest books. He says, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you allow sin to just have its effect on your life and to surround yourself with it, and then you wonder, man, why am I struggling in sin? The answer is right before you. In the context of this passage, spiritual blindness was being passed on to the disciples from the Pharisees. And it caused the disciples to get distracted by the cares of this world rather than fixing their eyes on Jesus, which we're going to return to in just a moment. The third, you need to remember all the ways that Jesus has provided for you in the past. You need to sit down. <laughs> you need to slow down. And you just need to think about all the ways that God has actually been good to you in the past. Because sometimes living in the fast pace 
pressurized world that we live in too often, we get so anxious and we get so ahead of ourselves that we forget to slow down and we forget to remember that God is good and God has provided in the past. Another scripture that's been on my mind a lot this past year has been Psalm 46, verse 10. It's a great one that you should memorize and kind of keep uh, in your arsenal of verses. But it's that simple command from the psalmist to be still and know that I am God. We are so restless and so anxious and so fast moving sometimes that we forget to just stop and be still. And remember that God is God. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who controls all things. Nothing is too big for him. Not even a crowd of 5,000 or 4,000 people for him to be able to feed with nothing but a single loaf. Be still and remember all the times and all the ways that God has supplied. We are so quick to forget. So we need to slow down and remember all the ways that God has provided for us in the past. Fourth, and this gets back to the point we were just talking about a moment ago. You need to take your eyes off the things of this world. This was the problem for the disciples in many ways. And not surprisingly, it's one of our biggest problems, if we're honest with ourselves. Spoke a few moments ago of how the disciples were distracted by the, the cares of this world. And while it may seem like an exaggeration, this is, act, this is what we call worldliness. Worldliness is nothing more than allowing the things of this world to have its influence on our life. And not just have its influence, but cause us to start to run in the same direction. It's to be more consumed by the things of this world than the things of God. And students, I, I feel for you, as I do for adults even, but I feel especially for you. This is one of the reasons that I'm really passionate about this age group right now in life because this pressure is so real and so often you don't even know it. You don't even recognize it. I think that's why we, you need godly leaders in the church to be here to help you so that you can try to see what oftentimes you're blind to. Now, mean that in a negative way. I'm not trying to say that to shame you. I'm just saying the allures of the world and the messages you hear from all directions are very real. And sometimes even Christians get distracted by those and we start to get wrapped up in them, right? The stress that you put on you yourself for just the next thing in life I mean, how often are we inundated by the message that, you know, you just need to do really well in school so that you can get really good grades. And, you know, you really want to get the good grades so that you can get into the best schools possible so that then you can get the best type of job prospects as possible. And then you can make enough money so that you can have a family and buy a house. And then maybe if you continue to advance far enough, you can retire at an early age and you can have this type of life. And it sounds so good to us. And sometimes that's not a wrong message depending on how it's approached, but so often we get so consumed with that type of message that we forget to ourselves, that's not what Jesus has primarily called us to. And yet, that is so often the 50, 60 year plan that the world is putting before you. This is what you should pursue. And again, I'm not saying that going to school and getting good grades is a bad thing. I'm not saying that going to college to get a job is a bad thing. None of those things in and of themselves are bad. But if that is the ambition and the things that you are just living for is just that next thing in life, student, you're, you're going to be disappointed. And you're going to miss out on 
the glories of what God has actually called you to in this world. A world that's calling you to engage with the next big app or the next big streaming service or the next show. We just get so distracted from the bigger purpose of what God has called you to. Jesus is going to hit on that in just a few passages from now. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about it, where Jesus talks about this is what your life is really supposed to be. Student, if, you're, if you were a genuine Christian, you look at that message of the world, you should look at those things. You say, I don't really, I don't really care at the end of the day because my life is not summed up in any one of those specific things. Yes, my Christianity influences the way that I attack those things, of course. But those things are not my greatest pursuits. And if you do, if you make them, then you're falling into the same level of blindness that the disciples did. I'm going to put it in a way that someone years ago put it for me that was really helpful when I was in college. When you're in eternity, Lord willing, I pray that for you. When you're in heaven, you're not going to be having that conversation with the person next to you that says, man, I just really wish I would have been able to get that promotion at work. Man, I really wish I would have gone to that school dance back in the day. Man, I really wish that I would have binge-watched that show that everybody else was watching. That's like that meme that is out there of like, you know, <laughs> things that nobody says in heaven. That's what that is. Because you're not going to care about those things. And guess what? God's not going to care about them. He's not. I wish we could adopt more of Paul's mindset, Philippians 3.8, where he says, Everything that I once counted as worth, I now count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. Boy, if you could adopt that as your theme verse, or what he says in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, man, student, how different would your life look? How different if you adopted that type of mindset? If you were to take your eyes off the things of this world and you were to turn your eyes upon Jesus instead. This is the solution. This is the solution to the problem that both we and the disciples face. It's to adopt the eternal heavenly mindset. What Colossians 3.2, what Paul says is to set our mind on things above rather than the things that are on earth. Because the things on earth are passing away. They are futile. They are vanity. That's why I love the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And if you haven't done so, I put it on your note sheet this week. You should go and listen to the Sovereign Grace version of that song. It reminds us that when we truly fix our eyes on Jesus and not the things of this world, the things of this world will become strangely dim. And I love that language, strangely dim. In other words, they, it looks odd. The things that we once counted as value, the things that we once thought were worth pursuing, we're going to look at them and we're going to be like, is that really what I thought? 
Is that really what this world thinks that, that life is all about? Strangely dim in the light of God's glory and grace. But if you're in the position of so many other people in the Gospels, you are spiritually blind. And I ask you this question. How can a blind person make himself see? The answer is, he can't. The only way to truly see Jesus is for Jesus to open your eyes. And the good news is that Mark has structured his gospel in such a way to set the stage for what we're going to return to in two weeks. We're not actually here next week. We've got to have a, a ministry report in 9.30 by two of our missionary partners, K&H, which you need to be at. I don't say that lightly. You need to be there. But when we return in two weeks, I would encourage you to read ahead of time, verses 22 to 30, and you're going to see why this idea of spiritual blindness is so important and why Jesus alone is the one who is able to turn your eyes upon him. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together this morning. I just plead, I plead right now with you for the sake of our students that you would open their eyes to behold you in all of your glory and all of your grace and for them to see that you alone are worthy of the pursuits in this life and then the life to come. Help them not to fall for the distractions of this world, which I know are an allurement and they are so enticing. I, I get that. I see it. And even there are times, Lord, where I myself am prone to wander towards those things. And I pray, Lord, forgive me. And I pray and ask that you would help us all this morning to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to see him in all of his beauty and all of his grace and all of his worthiness and all of his goodness for our lives. And that we as a result might be changed and be used mightily for your kingdom purposes until the day when you call us to glory for to live for you now is Christ, but to die, Lord, is great gain. So we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.